Hello and welcome to the Politics Home podcast. I'm Matt Honeycomb-Foster, news editor here at Politics Home. We've got a very special summer edition of the podcast today. Um, the editor of Politics Home, Kevin Schofield, sat down with an absolute Westminster legend. Uh, Sir Bernard Ingham is probably best known for serving as Margaret Thatcher's press secretary, or top spin doctor to use the slang, throughout her 11-year stint as Prime Minister. He had a front row seat through some of the most momentous events of recent political times, and his stint at number 10 still defines much of the way Downing Street interacts with the political journalists who make up the lobby. Uh, a former journalist himself, and even a one-time Labour Party candidate, he rose through the ranks of the civil service as a press secretary to politicians of all stripes before landing the Downing Street job, where he made a name for himself as a staunch defender of Mrs Thatcher and a master of the uh, sometimes brutal off-the-record briefing. So, Kevin, you got a chance to talk to him about a whole host of things, uh, demystifying the role of a press secretary, what it was like working for Margaret Thatcher, big moments of his career, and, of course, uh, inevitably at the moment, a bit of Brexit. What, what did you make of him? He's a fascinating guy, um, still pin-sharp mentally, uh, although he's 87 years old. And still, when I, I, we did it in his house, and you know, I walked in, and there was a pile of that day's newspapers, you know, so clearly still across all of um, all of current affairs. And as you see, when we talked about Brexit, he got particularly particularly passionate. I won't, I don't want to give anything away, but uh, yeah, he, he leaves you no doubt as to where he where he stands on the whole Leave Remain debate. So you got the sense he's still very much into the uh, the you know cut and thrust of politics and the the day to day drama of it all. Oh, without a doubt, you know, before we we. Uh, Pressed the button to record it. I said, so, you know, we'll, we'll talk about your past and significant events in your career, and then we'll probably touch on um, the way things are at the moment. He went, oh yeah, that lot, and I just thought, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably not a massive fan of how things are going right now. But it was fascinating because I asked them, you know, if you were still there, what would be your advice to the prime minister? How would you be handling the situation where we are at the moment? I asked them whether he thought. Uh, David Cameron had done the right thing in calling the referendum in the first place uh, and also what um, part Margaret Thatcher perhaps played in getting us to where we are now because she became increasingly Eurosceptic throughout her time in number 10. He's obviously gone toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with his, his kind of fair share of journalists over the years. Were you, uh, were you nervous in any Some sense? Some miles better than me. <laughs> many, many, yeah. I was a I was easy meat for him compared to uh, some of the folk that he's uh, dealt with. Yeah, I mean he was he was great as, as I say. You know, his um, his recall is fantastic. He went away into his little room and came back with a load of notes in case I asked him stuff that um, he maybe couldn't remember straight away. But he didn't even have to look at those bits of paper. You know, he was just um, he was just on it. You know, he just across all, all the detail and very strong in, in, in his opinions as you might expect and uh, yeah I mean it was, it was fascinating he's currently uh, piecing together his, his diaries for more books coming out looking at uh, specific periods uh, during Margaret Thatcher's time in office um, so they'll definitely be well worth reading I would, I would suggest. So without further ado let's uh, jump into things and have a listen to that interview in full. First of all I think if you could maybe explain, because in the podcast, what we sometimes try to do is let our listeners know a little bit about yeah. political journalism and what goes on behind the scenes. Okay. So can you explain for us what your job was as press secretary, essentially, what, what you did on behalf of the Prime Minister? 
Well, I, I was a press secretary for most of my 24 years in the civil service. And throughout that time, I had but one remit. And that was to promote an informed press and public about the government's policies and measures and to advise ministers and officials on their presentation. And that's the job. Now, you may say, well, how do you do it? Well, of course, you're there at the receipt of custom from uh, journalists all over the world who want, want you to answer questions. But if you're in number 10, you um, see the political correspondents who call lobby journalists twice a day, 11 and 4, uh, you see the Foreign Press Association on Monday. Well, I did. Yeah. Um, the a, a European group on Tuesday, the American correspondents on Wednesday, um, a regional group of British press on Thursday, and the Sunday lobby, Sunday newspaper lobby on Friday. And I reckon I did about 5,000 formal briefings in my 11 years of administration, about 30,000 other briefings. So there's plenty of opportunity to get it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's the the pressure, because essentially you are speaking on behalf of the Prime Minister. You are essentially in that room, the mm. Prime Minister. Mm. I mean, the pressure on you not to make a mistake, because, I mean, there can be serious repercussions if you were to say the wrong thing. I mean, it must be well, an enormous yes, I pressure. Mean, I mean, I once said that, since Mrs. Thatcher had told me that you can't buck the market, I said, we're not going to throw good money after bad defending the pound. And of course we didn't, we put up interest rates. Uh, but boy, did it cause trouble for a bit. <laughs> um, and the real problem, I think, for a press secretary is you can't you can't know everything that's going on in government. It's just not possible. But you have to try to keep up by reading as many uh, cabinet committee cabinet minute notes and all that uh, policy papers and this sort of thing. Um, and that that reading takes an enormous amount of time. And of course, in my day. Um, the civil service was not exactly the most open. It was a mm. pretty secretive society, um, probably one of the most secretive democracies in, 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 in the world. And therefore, you, you had a fight and a battle on your hands to get enough information. Yeah. The, real, the real point, however, is uh, that you have to be able to read the tea leaves. And fortunately, I had in Mrs. Thatcher a person who, once she'd made up her mind, didn't change it. And that was an enormous asset because I wasn't going to be chopped down. Left a swinging in, in the wind, yeah. as it were. I think I should add that there is one other aspect that is often forgotten to the job, and that is that you are an intelligent arm of the government. You learn an enormous amount from the media in the course of a day. And it's your job to make sure that the um, Prime Minister and the staff know that. Absolutely. And know what, know, what you, what, know what you know. Yeah. Um, I suppose it's important, I guess, to make people aware as well that your job as a civil servant, you would be speaking on behalf of a minister regardless of their political party. So in your career, you spoke for 
Labour ministers as well as Conservative ministers. Well, as a civil servant, <coughs> excuse me, as a civil servant, I was the press secretary to Barbara Castle, which was a very useful in introduction to Margaret Thatcher. Um, <laughs> um, and then Robert Carr and Maurice Macmillan, all those three in the Department of Employment, then Lord Carrington, mm-hmm. Eric Barley, and Tony Benn in the Department of Energy. So there were quite a number of lively people. Absolutely. There. And you basically have to park your own political views. Your views don't matter. Then. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean to say you don't have any. Uh, but you are there to represent what your minister uh, policy is mm-hmm. to promote and inform press and public about the government's policies and measures. And is it difficult not to let your own personal viewpoints come into play when you're giving advice or speaking on behalf of a minister? Difficult? Oh, no. um, um, I suppose I was helped with Mrs. Thatcher uh, because I'd seen far too much fiddling around before. Um, uh, because as an ex-Labour correspondent covering strike after strike in the 60s, I decided long before Mrs. Snatcher came that we couldn't go on like that. Mm. So I suppose that helped me. And I just, I rather like the smack of firm government. Which you certainly got oh, yes. with Mrs. Snatcher. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when, when, when were you first introduced to her and what was your initial thoughts on her? I went to see her at a lunch. I was invited to a lunch at which Michael Heseltine, believe it or not, was the most adoring person on the top table. <laughs> uh, and I, I then met her for the first time when she came to the Department of Energy shortly after her, well, the first department she visited after her election in 79 Mm. um, to find out how to live with Arthur's Cardinal and they couldn't tell him, um, tell her. And and I was invited at the last minute to have tea and cucumber sandwiches with her after. She wasn't best pleased and she discovered that I was then responsible for energy conservation policy and I rather got the impression over 15 seconds that I would be better employed not conserving my energy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, whether that was, whether I was being C-sized up, Mm -hmm. because she came to office without a press secretary, uh, whether I was being sized up, (laughs) I I have no idea. Uh, But a few weeks later, the permanent secretary at the department called me down and said, are you happy at your work? I said, delirious. He said, will you ever return to the Government Information Service? And I said, only if I made the Prime Minister's press secretary. And this lot won't do that, will they? And they did. <laughs> so you, you were quite shocked then? I was surprised that I was being invited by Mrs. Thatcher because it was well known that in my Guardian days, I fought a local election in Leeds for Labour. Hmm. Fortunately, I lost very heavily to a very nice Tory lady, and I give thanks to her every day for saving me from 
Railway government. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're a little bit concerned maybe that Mrs Thatcher might have thought that you were a bit of a, a secret lefty and that you weren't. Once she made it clear to me, she didn't care what my views were. Uh, my job was to get over her views. And you, and you struck up a good relationship, oh, obviously. Yeah. And you were the spokesman at a time of incredible change, oh. political turmoil. When you look at what went on, it's amazing. I mean, just, you know, off the top of my head, you've got the minor strike, you've got the Brighton bomb, um, you've got, well, just the well, political reforms that she, that she pushed through. Yes, unemployment over three million at one stage. Inflation, she got it down from, I think it was about 12% when she came into three, and then Nigel Lawson threw it away by shadowing the Deutschmark. Um, there was economic trouble all along the line. Um, she was frequently accused of being um, unbending, unsympathetic. Uh, nobody would put in the kind of stint she did if she didn't care. Um, but leave that on one side. Um, you name it, we had it. I mean, Falklands we, War as well. You had a war. <laughs> Falklands War. Um, Reagan uh, invading Grenada, much to her distress. Uh, offering to give up his nuclear weapons with Gorbachev and she wondered whether he'd gone mad since she said that um, doesn't he know that technology can't be disinvented can't be and so we went on and what would you say were the, the toughest times in your job because did you say you were permanently on the defensive having to um, as I say the, the Prime Minister was pushing through a lot of unpopular policies how do you go about getting the message across in such a way that it, it put a positive gloss on the things that the Prime Minister was trying to do? Well, I think, I think, I mean, first of all, the first two years were virtually impossible with firms closing every night, ITN recording it, unemployment climbing and inflation still quite high. And that was very, very difficult. But then, of course, came the test of the Falkland War, where I'd never handled a war before, and you have to be very, very careful that you don't uh, place our troops in peril. Um, and that was a, a pretty tough business, uh, because frankly, during the Falklands War, uh, when I did the briefing, there, there wasn't a square inch of carpet left. Mm. in my room in number 10, they all turned up and... Um, and you had to answer all the questions and you must well, have been you getting try to answer them, I mean sometimes you simply can't answer because you don't know. Yeah. And the Ministry of Defence falsely accused me at one stage of leaking the goose green operation before it took place, I didn't, they did. Um, you you can be a scapegoat. Of Quite course. Fun. Yeah. Was it fair to say that you were maybe the first press secretary who became um, a personality in your well, own I right? Think, I think that that was because of television. It, it, I wasn't. Uh, the tradition of the British spokesman is that they 
operate behind the scenes. Um, they, they don't go on radio and television, but you rapidly become known in the television area because you're seen with the being Prime Minister. And do you think that the way that you were presented was, was fair, unfair, or...? Oh, one totally unfair by some, but pretty objective by others. I mean, it, it varies. Yeah. Um, and and t- people argue, and especially the BBC, that I spent all my time rowing with them. I didn't. Uh, they were entitled to their opinions, but if those opinions were formed on false facts, uh, false news, mm. then I'd, I'd sought to correct it. So even then we had fake news? Even then, even in no, I never days. heard of fake news. It's become a relatively <laughs> new thing, yeah. <laughs> I, I had lots. I mean, I sometimes, um, I sometimes um, uh, describe my job as being like a a Finnish soldier during the uh, Winter War of thirty nine forty against the Russians, who mown him down indiscriminately. They just so many of them, and. Here am I mowing, and, and the press office mowing down speculation, conspiracy theory, um, assumption, misinterpretation. Oh, you name it. Yeah, we can we can, we can be a, a terrible lot sometimes as as political journalists. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, they they are infected with the. Uh, um, it's, it's uh, what I describe as the John the Carey syndrome, you know. <laughs> uh, two and two will never make four. It must be 22, <laughs> and in any case, it's a better story. <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. This is very true. <laughs> um, the one key difference, I think, as well, <clears throat> lobby in those days and lobby now is it was off the record. Well, it still is, I think. No, it's on the record now. Everything in lobby... Uh, in the actual lobby briefing, the Prime Minister's official spokesman comes in and he answers questions and they're all on the record. But the, the official spokesman isn't identified, I don't know who he is. No, 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 he's not named. No. But we will say a spokesman for the Prime Minister says. So everything he says is recorded. That means he doesn't say much. Uh, at, at times, some are better than others, I have to yeah, say. Yeah. Um, but did that give you more freedom to basically say things off the record. No, I don't think it did give you a freedom because you knew you'd be misinterpreted. Um, you were waiting for the misinterpretation. No, I don't think there was a freedom there. The The objective of the exercise, as I keep repeating to journalists, is that the press secretary must retain credibility, otherwise he's no use to man or beast. He's no use to them if he's incredible. He's no use to the Prime Minister or the government, and therefore you try to retain your credibility. And you can't retain credibility by talking Tommy Rotter all the time and misleading them. This is true. Um, you're right, I mean, they're, they live or die on their reputation, essentially, mm-hmm. both with the Prime Minister, I yeah. guess, and with, with yeah. journalists as well, because we have to be able to trust what they, what they tell us. Um, I was going to ask about the miners' strike. I mean, obviously that was a long-running um, thing that, I guess, was a huge crisis for the Prime Minister, and it was a battle which she couldn't fail, she couldn't afford to lose. I mean, 
what was that like for you during well, that during that time? I mean, the history of these stocks when she came to Indeed. my department to find out the Department of Energy then and tried to find out how to live without the stock bill. And of course, he challenged her. I think it was in eighty one, but I can't be sure. And there was a threat of a strike then, and she discovered that the Department of Energy had not prepared. And we couldn't sustain a strike, so she, that was her only major U-turn, mm. but she wasn't going to fight a battle she couldn't win. But she then sent uh, Nigel Dawson to the Department of Energy and told him to make sure we could withstand the strike when the next one came, because it was going to come with Scargill. And, uh, Fortunately, um, our power stations were almost sinking under coal and fuel and whatnot. And uh, Walter Marshall uh, got the nuclear generators up to scratch. And I think it was fairly reasonable to say it was a, a closer and thing at time, time, at the time. But um, in the end, her will prevailed, and that will uh, was demonstrated by a determination that the police should uphold the law. Um, and um, the nation couldn't go on uh, constantly being handicapped by strikes. Did the police go over over the score at times? I mean, there's always the, the suggestion that they were... Particularly, I mean, like Orgreave, for instance, is still... Uh, it depends upon the provocation they get, I suppose, but I think they probably behave with a hell of a lot more restraint than most police forces in the world. And it was how important was it that, that, that she won that battle? Well, it's crucial. Because otherwise, the mob takes over. I mean, the, 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 the Stargill split the NUM, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is a pretty considerable achievement, bearing in mind the solidarity of the NUM, uh, but the Nottinghamshire miners were not having, were not going to be called out on strike just because Cargill wanted one, and uh, the, the, the union was split on, on that account, but it was, it was absolutely crucial that the government won, because otherwise well, you could almost say that democracy went out of the window because the mob took over and some of the actions of uh, uh, Scargill's pickets and flying pickets, the stories I got from journalists living in the Yorkshire country were horrendously intimidating. And in the midst of this came the, the Brighton bombing, yeah. which... Um, uh, well, that was it. We had the IRA all the time. Um, as, well, I think that showed again her calibre uh, when in, in the morning she insisted the conference go on. Yeah. The, um, I watched the, the five-part documentary on the BBC. Yeah, you yeah. were interviewed in that quite, quite prominently. And what, what came across was that she was often at war with her own cabinet as much as with the opposition. Did that get tougher the longer she was in power? Well, I think it was appalling during the first two years because there, she she had in her cabinet a number of wits who frankly didn't agree with her economic policy and wanted to get rid of her. Uh, but she prevailed then. And then um, 
Heseltine, who was simply incapable of containing his ambition, uh, cooked up a one of the most idiotic, stupid, hypocritical nonsenses I've ever known, called the uh, Westland Affair, when he decided that Westland, a 300 million company, which wasn't a very large one, but an important uh, maker of uh, helicopters, um, should be taken over by a non-existent European consortium. The government's position was uh, that um, it should find its own salvation, which it did with the American Sikorsky. And uh, although he was Secretary of State for Defence, Heseltine conducted a guerrilla campaign in public um, against his own government until he walked out because he was told to stop it. Um, and that was that was very, very trying because you remember that uh, um, I, I suppose I am still accused by some that uh, I leaked the uh, Solicitor General's letter correcting factual inaccuracies, material inaccuracies in his letter that miraculously found its way into the time. <laughs> and uh, um, I didn't. The DTI rang me up and said, to my astonishment, they'd gotten they and Britain's permission to leak the letter. And I said, I don't like that at all. Um, um, isn't there another way of getting out the essential information? Of course, there are any endless number of ways of doing it. Um, but no, they had to leak it. And then they said, but we want you to leak it. I said, I'm not doing that. I'm keeping the Prime Minister above that sort of thing. Mm. I'm still blamed for it. Even even to this day, even to this day, yeah. <laughs> Do you? I mean, that was also an example of an ambitious cabinet minister. Well, it was also an example of one other thing, and that was, Mrs. Thatcher. They had always been pro-Europe, but she'd had enough of it by the time eighty-eight came. Two years earlier was the Westland Affair, and with the Westland Affair, in a sense, was the first manifestation of real difficulty in the party over Europe. Mm -hmm. And uh, by 1988, Mrs. Thatcher had had enough and made her speech in Bruges, you remember. I do indeed. I was reading about it on, on the way here. I was going to ask yeah. about it, actually, because it's seen as, basically, by some observers, as setting us on the path towards Brexit? Well, I think that if Europe had listened to her, if she condemned its um, move to a federal Europe, imposing a federal Europe, um, collective but undemocratic responsibility, as it were, um, uh, if they'd have listened to that, I don't think we would have had Brexit because we would now have a different kind of Europe. And that Europe would be looser, uh, cooperating nation states. And they would do things together. And I think as a consequence of that, Europe would be stronger than it is. It's very wet yeah. at the moment, especially in terms of its own defence. Uh, but they didn't take a blind bit of notice. Um, 
Then along came Hal, who went native in the Foreign Office. Nigel Lawson, who I still don't understand why he wanted to join the ERM when he didn't want to join a single currency. My God, he was merely the forerunner. But they threatened to resign, you remember, if she didn't set a, mm -hmm. a date for entry, which was daft in itself. Um, uh, setting a date, that's a signal to the markets. Um, uh, in, I think it was 89 that, and they didn't resign, although eventually they went, uh, causing maximum trouble. Um, uh, and so you had Europe succeeding, if you like, um, her economic policy is the bone of contention. And that means that certainly since 1988 we've, the Tory party, and indeed Britain, has been divided over Europe. Mm -hmm. And Europe has gone wrong. And what I can't understand about all these Remainers is why they want to belong to an institution which is bureaucratic, undemocratic, protectionist, um, expensive, and frankly corrupt. It's a Franco-German axis. Uh, all the other little countries depend upon the goodwill of Germany and France. Mm. Um, and Really, I think we have to ask, are they prepared to say boo to a goose? Because look what's happened to Europe. It's in turmoil over the place, and southern Europe has been impoverished by the single currency. I mean, if ever two people got it wrong, and John Major now, uh, Lawson and uh, Howe wrong over the single currency, and uh, it, it, which has caused chaos, they got it wrong over ERM, over the single currency. What a catalogue of error. And you, Mrs Thatcher was right all along. Do you think that David Cameron, given all the political turmoil that has resulted, was he right to call the referendum? Do you think it was unavoidable? Was it the right political move, well, do you think, to call the referendum in the first place? Well, he, he called it... <laughs> Apparently to unify the Tory party, and look what happened. <laughs> uh, that was one of the more failed, uh, one of the great failures of political moves. Um, was it inevitable? Well, I'm often asked the question, would Mrs Thatcher have left the European Union? And I think it's very presumptuous to tell people what a woman would do, even a predictable woman like Margaret Thatcher, uh, 40 years on, when mm. we're all afar and asunder, and she's in a grave and for the last 10 years had dementia. All I can say is that she'd had it up to the ears with Europe by 1988, and every move since then has been to have greater integration. They've, they've got a single currency, they've got a single European bank, they clamour to get on every international institution in Europe without any democratic backing. Um, they, they, they now want a single foreign policy and now they're going for an army when they won't pay for the one they've got in NATO. 
I mean, it is outrageous when you come to think of it. And how on earth can these blessed remainers embrace an institution of that kind? And they never tell you. All they can do is try to frighten the death out of us. What do you think, given that you knew Mrs Thatcher so well when she was at the peak of her powers, how would she handle the current, the current crisis? Well... And it's a difficult question, this, I realise. This suggests it would have arisen in any case. Well, how would she have handled it then? What back she from would have done had she remained in office would have been conducting a one-woman war with Europe over its mistaken ideas. The big question is, what would she have done if they were so blind they didn't take any notice that they carried on as they did? And I think that there'd been a, there would have been ructions, and you can't rule out the possibility that she would have led us out. But I, who knows, she might have won. And she did eventually get two-thirds of her money back after four years, didn't she, because of the excessive contribution we made. Well, that was one of the other amazing battles that, that, oh. that she fought. Oh. It must have been a pretty exhausting time in you doing that job. I didn't realise how tired I was until I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see parallels um, in how Theresa May was treated by the party, leaving the a political... Views okay. it to one side, the way she was um, defenestrated in the same way that Margaret Thatcher was ultimately. Were there other parallels there, do you think? Um, the Tory party is always ruthless with its leaders, um, unlike Labour, who, as we see today, is unutterably self-indulgent. Um, and therefore, I think there are parallels between Margaret Thatcher and Mrs May, not that they're both women, although I do think that some of them have difficulty been led by a woman, not the least, Heseltine. Um But um, Mrs May was given an impossible task. She had to pick up the consequences of a referendum. And because she... Uh, was a highly principled and responsible woman. She wanted to get the best deal she could, and she wasn't a roughhouser. Now, I think Mrs. Thatcher would have been a bit of a roughhouser, mm-hmm. um, and she would have given them what for, and I hope Boris does too. Um, uh, but the, I think the parallel is that they... They both tried hard, uh, but in the end, the party, if it thinks it's going to lose, and it's notoriously panicky, the Tory party, if it thinks it's going to lose, then it's got to get another leader, even though it doesn't know it's going to be. Mm. Um, and um, I think the parallel here is that they fell out of love with Mrs Thatcher after 11 years because she ran a very wearing government. Uh, people do accuse her of not being a good man manager, but some of them, I mean, the only way you could manage them was to cane them, in my view. Um, um, and Mrs. May, who wasn't the same kind of dominant personality, um, had exactly the same trouble. 
And, and they, 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 they began to realise, I think, the Tories, that they couldn't win with Mrs May. But the, the, the short answer is that they can't win unless they get out of Europe. Yeah. What would be your... If you were still in the job that you had and you were doing it for Boris Johnson, what would be the one piece of advice you would give him now as we approach? Stand firm. But I think I'd tell him also to curb his spendthrift way. I mean, he's chucking a lot of money around. Yeah. And uh, we're still paying debt. And our national debt grows. Not as alarmingly as Trump's, but... um, Nonetheless, I do think he has to be a bit more careful, um, and I, I don't think that bribery can get everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I noticed when I came in. Obviously, you're still a keen uh, observer of current affairs. A big pile of newspapers in there. Uh, old old habits die hard. I mean, as you look at the current turmoil, do you wish that you were? A younger man and still involved in it? Would that be a, it'd be a, fa- a fascinating time? I think I would have a great deal of fun in Europe. Yes. Um, whether I would have a great deal of fun in this country is entirely another matter because you, I did my job without a mobile telephone or a computer. The march of technology since then and the proliferation of the media, if that is how it a lot of this gossip can be described. I think they pay far too much attention to the uh, uh, internet, even though I'm doing a podcast, um, <laughs> um, than uh, they, they should, but that's a matter of judgment. I, I think I'm glad I'm not in it, although I do miss it, I think, going to Brussels and telling them what's what. I mean, I used to... Be, I spent most of my time there in a minority of one. Mind, it was a bit better than being in the Commonwealth. You were in a minority of 50. But <laughs> leave that on one side. Um, in a minority of one, um, you do command a certain attention for your views. And um, I, I think Mrs. Thatcher would have had nobody getting over hers. Uh, so I miss that. Yeah. Well, miss it. Um, I think I can see what joys of spring there would be in it. <laughs> <laughs> Bernard, it's been fascinating and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks ever so much for your okay. time. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs>